Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jakubowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate. Lots of questions swirling around like confetti. Lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain. Sleepless nights, shallow breathing. Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook. People who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice. These are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo. It's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a sane split. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. I cannot recall a single parent I have encountered as a family law lawyer and family mediator who did not want to be a meaningful part of their children's lives after separation. Now, be a meaningful part can take a variety of forms. For example, to some parents, it's particularly important to participate in the making of major decisions about their children. Some parents may not be able to have the children live with them one half of the time because of their nature of their job, shift work, or expectations that they travel. But they do want to be at the steering wheel, so to speak, when it comes to their children's health, welfare, and education, major decisions about those major issues, along with the other parent. To other parents, having the children live with them for extended periods of time is of primary importance. And we could spend an entire episode talking about what the phrase extended periods of time means or could mean. But that is not my point today. Sometimes when a parent first comes to see me, they ask, what is the usual arrangement for kids? What is normal? How much time do kids normally spend with each parent? And I tell them that there is no such thing, particularly today in 2022, when more and more parents co-parent children, assuming that is truly best for them, the children and not the parents. For many parents who come to see me, being a meaningful part of their children's lives means no less than A, participating in making major decisions about them, and B, having them in their home one half of the time or thereabouts. Sounds simple, straightforward, does it not? Many parents think so, and they say to themselves, why would we need lawyers to help us with this, right? We can draft something ourselves. And they type up a document, sign it, 
They even take it to a notary to witness their signatures. And later, one of the parents tells me, we did that to make it legal. And then they run into trouble. And I will explain a bit more about this trouble they run into. Look, if you are one of those parents, a well-meaning person who thought this was simple, I'm not making fun of you, belittling you, looking down on you. I'm not doing any of those things. I would not do that, and I'm not doing that. This talk is meant to impart on you and on other parents the importance of understanding the law around children, around decision-making and residential arrangements for kids, because this law has consequences for you and for your kids. Many people have an instinctive feel for what is right and wrong, for what is fair. I do. I bet you do as well. And that is how they approach kids' issues as well when separation happens. Both parents are well-motivated. They want to save money on legal fees. They do want to ink their agreement to be able to show that it exists, that they agreed in writing. They even have a notary affix a stamp to what they write up because for some reason they believe that adds weight to their agreement, somehow makes it more official, legal perhaps. Here is my point. If you cannot stomach the idea of paying a lawyer to draft a separation agreement for you to begin with, once you and the other parents separate and need to deal with all of the issues related to your kids, then at least learn from the mistakes other parents have made and the money they have had to spend in an attempt to fix those mistakes. I have been a family law lawyer since 1996. And I can tell you that in that time, I have encountered many, many cases in which the parents signed a home-cooked separation agreement, and then had problems, sometimes major problems related to that agreement, some related to how property and debts were divided on separation. Someone did not know they were entitled to a part of their ex's pension. Another person sold their share of the house to the other party at a ridiculously low price. I had a case many years ago in which there was no property division at all at the end of a very, very long marriage because one spouse convinced the other that they were not entitled to anything. Setting those money examples aside, today we're talking about kids. You could sign a home-cooked separation agreement which truly compromises your rights in that respect, or even worse, affects your kids' best interests because their interests and rights come first. If you enter such an agreement, one that is not in keeping with the law about children, and then that agreement ends up before the court, 
A family court judge has the right to set it aside. I'm not saying that they always will, because whether they do so depends on the circumstances of your particular case. But they do have jurisdiction to do it. Why? Because parents cannot enter into an agreement that is not in their children's best interests based on the law. So this means that five years ago, you might have entered into a home-cooked agreement with the other parent, lived by that agreement, thought all along that it was valid, and then there was a problem. Something changed in the kids' living arrangements. You want to stick to the agreement. The court tells you no. That agreement does not apply here. Let me give you a practical example. And this comes from real cases I have encountered over the years. I have represented a number of parents over the years who had home-cooked agreements talking about splitting the kids. That is how many parents refer to arrangements where the kids live with each parent one half of the time. The agreement says the kids will live with us based on a schedule. They might include the actual schedule, the timetable, but some of them are silent on that altogether. They simply say half the time. And then the agreement includes a clause, many, many of them do, that says that because the children are living with each parent one half of the time, there will be no child support owed by either parent to the other. There's nothing about Section 7 expenses, such as daycare, camp, ballet, nothing about how tax credits or the child tax benefit will be dealt with, split or otherwise. Nothing about what happens if either parent wants to move. Sometimes there is no clause at all about how major decisions will be made, about choice of school, for example, or braces or religion, or whether Sally can take on a new expensive hobby and how that hobby will be paid for by the parents. Or if Johnny wants to play rep baseball. Any of those issues on their own could cause a problem for these parents after the agreement is signed. And I have seen these problems, these complications. I have had parents come to me asking that I fix them, and we try. And it often costs a lot of money to do so because some doors have closed and we need to create workarounds and, of course, get the other side's cooperation to do that. The money it costs to fix the problems later could have been spent, better spent, on doing the agreement the right way in the first place. Here is a classic mistake many, many parents make when they think about splitting the kids, as they say. They think that when kids live with each of them one half of the time, there is no child support paid ever. That is not correct because that is not the law. 
when parents divide the children's residence, it is possible for each of them to argue under the law that the table amount of child support should not be paid in their case. Now, what is the table amount of child support? I did an episode about the basics of child support, and it dropped on November 13th of 2021. I encourage you to listen if you need to get a handle on child support in Canada and in Ontario, but here is a simple explanation. The table amount of child support is the monthly amount paid by a parent to the other parent if the other parent has primary residence of the children. So if the kids live mainly with dad, mom pays him table child support based on her income. If the children live with the other parent at least 40% of the time, that parent gets to argue that the table amount no longer applies in this case, that some other calculation needs to be completed to figure out if any child support is owing. Our family law legislation and in, in Ontario, and in fact across Canada, aims at ensuring that children have similar standards of living in their parents' households. So let's imagine a couple. He makes $120,000 and she makes $30,000. Setting aside spousal support for the moment, why would it make sense that just because they are splitting the kids, having them one half of the time, there is no child support paid of some amount in those circumstances? In fact, the law says that we need to take a closer look at each situation involving shared residential arrangements and make child support arrangements to fit the circumstances. Here in our example, some child support needs to be paid by the parent making the higher income and what amount of support is an issue to be resolved. Because the child support guidelines do not give us a formula for those situations, just some factors to take into consideration. One way, one common way of dealing with such situations is to set off the support obligations. This is what I mean. If there are two kids in our example... We would figure out what the parent making the $120,000 a year would pay to the other parent in table child support. And then we would figure out what the parent making $30,000 would pay based on their income. And then we set off the two amounts. The result is that the parent with the higher income pays the difference in the amounts to the parent with the lower income. But that is just one way of figuring this out. Many of the parents who signed home-cooked agreements involving splitting the kids, as they call it, have no idea this is the law. 
For years and years, they struggle financially in their household while the other parent is buying the kids Canada goose jackets. Here's another example of a problem I encounter, the child tax benefit. Each parent has the kids with them half the time. Their home-cooked agreement says nothing about the child tax benefit. The parents agree on the side, so to speak, that it will be split. One parent is to report to CRA that both kids are living with them on a primary basis. And then when they receive the child tax benefit, they are to send one half to the other parent. A, that is not the law and how it's supposed to be done for CRA purposes. And B, what happens if the parent receiving the child tax benefit decides to stop sending one half of the amount to the other parent? Where is the other parent going to complain? Surely not CRA, because as far as CRA is concerned, the kids are living with the other parent primarily, and the complaining parent permitted that representation to be made. Are they going to go to court and spend thousands of dollars getting there? And once they go to court, will that not give the other parent an opportunity to complain about the child support arrangements for the last five years because he or she now found out what the law actually is? I can give you many, many more examples of problems I have encountered with home-cooked separation agreements because neither parent understood the law or was even aware that it's smart to address ahead of time some issues that might come up in the future. Travel, family reunions that fall on the other parent's time, makeup time, what happens when a parent is not available to care for the kids, and farms them off to a distant relative rather than the other parent. A parent meeting someone in another city, in another province or country, and proposing to move there with the kids. I have lots of examples. Here are your takeaways for today. And I leave you with them out of care and concern, having watched many, many parents make mistakes that were later tough and expensive to fix. Number one, do not assume you know the law, particularly when it comes to kids and related support arrangements. Who knows? When you actually hear what it is, you may find out it's actually to your benefit that you have better rights than you thought you did. Number two, do not rely on the other parent to tell you what the law is and what your rights are. I don't want to sound conspiratorial. They may not have had bad motives to mislead you. They may simply not know the law themselves. Or they may, in fact, be misleading you on purpose. Three, look ahead. So don't just deal with the current situation. Try and address the future as well, or at least 
some potential situations that might arise. Anticipate them. So, for example, what will happen if you and the other parent cannot agree on a major issue related to your kids in the future? How will that be resolved? If you are sharing the children's residence and then one child decides to live with one parent all the time, what happens? How is that addressed? What happens if one parent wants to move in the future? What happens if one parent's income changes? What happens if they get sick and cannot work? All of those issues can be addressed ahead of time in a well-drafted, smart, strategic separation agreement. Yes, there will be associated costs, but you will likely be saving yourself even bigger costs if you do it right from the beginning. So do you know what splitting the kids 50-50 actually means? Do you understand the legal consequences of such arrangements? Do you understand not only your obligations, but also your rights? To be altogether technical, splitting kids actually means that if there are two kids, for example, one lives with each parent on a primary basis. In this episode, we were really talking about shared parenting, not split. But you know us lawyers, we like this type of technical lingo. I knew what those parents really meant when they said they were splitting the kids. Look, if you make mistakes in your home-cooked separation agreement, it may be possible to fix them, or it may not. The court may have sympathy for you. I will for sure. But you can't go to the court and say, I did not know the law. That is not a defense you can use. Do it right to begin with. Inform yourself. You need to actually understand what splitting the kids means based on the law, what your rights and obligations are, what it means for your kids in a very practical way. Spend the money up front to avoid expensive problems later because understanding the law and how it affects you is essential to having a sane split. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, separationinontario.com. Subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app will make future episodes available to you automatically. Signing off for now.